Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story there of life after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there and I invite you to share your stories here. And today on the podcast, uh, we have a very special day to celebrate. We're celebrating a thousand days of recovery for our guest, Micheline, and we're going to meet her in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. So first of all, I just thought you might be interested to know we're recording this on October 21st, and it is our federal election here in Canada. Did you know that? Probably you didn't unless you're Canadian because we do things a little quietly up here. But that's what's going on. So as soon as this is done, I'm going off to vote. And I just feel like that is just always such a privilege and such a, an emotional thing to me to be able to vote and to be just part of, I don't know, having our say and making things happen. So anyway, for interest's sake, that's what's going on in Canada. So by the time you hear this, who knows, maybe we'll know who our new prime minister will be. If we have a new prime minister, maybe we'll have the same one again. Google that in the morning and see what who, what happens here in Canada. I also wanted to tell you I have been super busy for the last couple weeks. I am putting together something called the Unpickled Holidays for Revival Guide, and it is just a slim volume of anecdotes and resources and a sort of collected wisdom kind of a book regarding the holidays and the ways that sober people can look after themselves during the holidays. It's got lots of little stories and tips on how to handle different conversations, things that people have said here on the Bubble Hour that's worked for them, things that people have commented on my blog, things that they say when, for example, Someone says, oh, you can just have one glass of champagne. It's New Year's. What do you say to that in a way that doesn't cause conflict or make you feel uncomfortable? So anyway, that's it's just kind of a little practical handbook. And I challenged myself to get this done in the month of October and have it ready to go on November 1st. It's almost ready. I'm currently waiting on the government of Canada to provide me with an ISBN number. That's a little barcode for the back of the book. So, you know, they're busy having an election today, so I guess I won't be getting my barcode today. That's, it's, it is really fun putting this together. I'm enjoying it so much more than I thought I would. The topics that I have kind of happening in it are managing your expectations, managing invitations to various events, going to family events and why those can be triggering in their own 
special, magical way, hosting events, uh, going to work events. I write about uh, transfer behaviors like eating and shopping, how those can get a little bit out of hand during this season, but how we manage that. And as I said, there's just loads of material from other people in recovery. So I kind of realized that, you know, I don't want to be a recovery expert. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not any of these things. But I have held space for a lot of stories. And I just wanted to collect some of the amazing things we've heard over the years and put it together into something that hopefully will be really helpful for you. So keep an eye out for that. As I said, it should be available November 1st. I'll have ordering information on the social media pages for Unpickled and the Bubble Hour. If all else fails, have a look on Amazon um, and just search Gene McCarthy. So speaking of Unpickled, uh, um, there's always amazing comments that are posted in the blogs. And so even though I haven't been writing a ton on that blog, I post, you know, once or twice a month. Every single day there are just amazing comments from people in various stages of recovery. And one that was posted Yesterday was just so lovely. I thought I'd take a moment and read it to you. So it's from a woman by the name of Julie. And she says, I just wanted to tell you that you can do this. My last drink was in 2014. Vodka was my drink of choice. I worried for a long time that I had a drinking problem, but when I'd bring up my worries to friends and family, everyone said I was fine. Everyone except my husband. He finally agreed that, yeah, I did seem to have a problem. And it turns out I really didn't want to hear that. I started hiding my drinking from him, hurrying home from work so I'd have time to down a few cocktails and brush my teeth before he got home, hiding the giant bottle of vodka in various spots around the house, putting extra effort into cooking and cleaning and trying to be perfect so that I could help to assuage the guilt that I felt about lying to him. And obviously he saw through it, which led to major arguments and resentment. I finally realized that trying to moderate wasn't going to work. I was so ashamed of myself, so I tried to quit altogether, but I couldn't get past three days. The stopping and starting and hating myself for being so weak went on for quite a while. And then finally, I got some momentum. I started commenting on the sober blogs I'd been reading. I joined some online support groups and posted every day. I listened to sober podcasts like The Bubble Hour almost constantly. I watched YouTube videos. I found sober support Facebook groups. I went to bed when I felt like I was going to crawl out of my skin because I'd wanted to drink so badly no matter how early it was. I started seeing a counselor who helped me start unraveling a whole lot of healthy, unhealthy patterns that went back to childhood. I committed to being completely honest in a kind way with my husband instead of always trying to be perfect, and things slowly got better. The first few weeks were tough, but some days I didn't do much beyond go to work and go to bed. But I was so proud of myself for doing this hard thing, and I still am. Sobriety helped me find peace contentment and the real me and my husband kids and I are better than ever some of my other family members haven't been so supportive of the changes I've made in my life but I feel strong enough now to let go of their approval sobriety helped me change my life in ways I couldn't have imagined not splashy ways like suddenly losing 20 pounds or getting a glamorous new job but in deep quiet meaningful ways I don't miss drinking anymore and I never want to go back if I can do this you can too And I just thought that was such a great comment and a sample of the kind of support that people are giving each other in the comment section of blogs like mine and the like thousands of other ones out there. So if uh, reading blogs has kind of slipped out of your routine, I really encourage you to go and do a little jumping around and don't just read the posts, read the comments, because wow, there is some amazing stuff happening there. So 
that is my update, and let's meet our guest. I'm really, really pleased for you to hear from this lovely lady. Her name, as I said, is Micheline, and she recently celebrated a 1,000 days of sobriety. And to celebrate, she decided to get out of her comfort zone and tell her story here. Micheline, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you, Jean. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, this is definitely out of my comfort zone, so um, I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity because I think it was uh, just time for me to step up probably and and maybe share a little bit more about um, what 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 my story is because um, I've gotten so much out of um, this podcast and many of the others that I've listened to and just like the comment that you just read, um, you know, a lot of my story is looking at what others have been up to um, through either, you know, social media or blogs or books and podcasts. And so, um, you know, I'm thrilled to, if, if this is useful for anybody who listens to it, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to do that. So I'm just going to dive right in um, and give you a little bit of background. Uh, I guess my story, as it were, um, I've been sober as you mentioned for just over a thousand days, I decided to get sober on January 1st, 2017. And just by way of background, you know, I grew up in California in a very small town. I had a fairly, what I would call a traditional childhood, but there were some untraditional things about um, my family makeup um, that probably later as an adult, I realized maybe had a little bit more of an effect and than any of us thought it would when we were growing up. When I was a baby, my father was killed in an accident suddenly. And my mom and my sister and I were sort of left on our own. My mom was a very young mother. And then she ended up remarrying um, a lovely man who was my, my really was my dad my whole life and had a couple more kids. But my, the way that our family was, we were full of steps or brothers and sisters and half-brothers and sisters. So we were this kind of strange collection of people. And I think that, you know, like I said, I, I would call it a pretty traditional upbringing, but my dad was in law enforcement. And so as it, my parents were fairly conservative and we had a very sort of strict upbringing. At the same time, I grew up in a very big drinking family um, where most of my relatives and my parents' friends drank and smoked pretty heavily. Um, I don't think at the time I thought it was heavy, but I look back now and a lot of the activity that we did, everything from going to our grandparents' house to going to friends' house revolved around drinking in some way, shape, or form. And um, so we grew up kind of with that dichotomy, sort of a strict upbringing, expectations of good grades, community service, sports, and all the other activities. Yet at the same time, we were kind of exposed to... um, the, I think the the feeling that, you know, you needed to blow off steam at the end of the day by, um, by drinking. And so, and I think for my mom, looking back on it, it was a coping mechanism having suffered um, pre- a pretty traumatic childhood and a lot of other things. So I kind of cut her some slack there, but I look back on it and I, I can tell that that was where it, kind of the idea was seeded for me. When I got, when I really didn't touch drugs or alcohol or anything until um, well into high school. When I entered high school, I think I was fearful of um, doing too much partying because I thought that it would somehow make me behave differently, and I was really afraid of losing control. So I kind of fell in with a bunch of kids. I guess you could say different crowds of 
you know, the popular kids, the sporty kids and whatnot, went to a lot of parties. And I was kind of known as the person who was always sober. And I did that partially because I was fearful of what would happen if I didn't behave that way. But also, I had sort of developed some pride around being a little bit different than my peers. And that's something that's pretty hardwired in me, and it's kind of followed me for my whole life. I'm not, not much of a group person. I like to identify with different kinds of activities and people. I don't have a large group of friends. I have many close individual friends. And so I tend to not um, do things just because the whole group is. So that's how I conducted myself through the first half of high school. The second half of high school didn't go the same way because I went to a friend's house and I, um, who had a bar in her home and an open keg, and I got just unbelievably drunk my first opportunity to get drunk. And I um, experienced all of the awfulness that goes with that from throwing up to head spins to the next day thinking I needed to go to an emergency room. I was so sick with a hangover. And you would think that that opportunity to kind of see the light and say, wow, this is really bad, <laughs> would, would have prevented me from continuing to drink. But instead... Um, I think the fact that there was so much kind of a blackout-ish numbiness that went along with it and the fact that it relieved social anxiety kind of kicked off, you know, my drinking career in high school. And so I ended up imbibing through the rest of high school. But at the same time, coming again from a very small town and feeling like there was some kind of opportunity outside of that for me and only being laser-focused on wanting to get out of that town and go somewhere else and make something of myself. I did continue to get good grades. I participated in a lot of things so that I could get into a good university and be able to leave home. You know, once I did that, I, I was able to go to a big university on the other side of the state and went seat first into um, a school that had about 30,000 students. And again, being not the big group person, I didn't go seeking groups to sort of assimilate into the school. I went in not, not knowing a soul and just sort of uh, kept among myself and then, you know, met a few friends and ended up really catapulting myself into a sort of scary um, way of coping with the anxiety by drinking too much. And, um, and I was also in a culture, admittedly, um, where I was surrounded by people who drank all the time. It was a very common thing at the school. There was a big fraternity and sorority scene, and the fraternity scene particularly was a big party thing. And so I basically, I'd say I cemented a very abusive relationship in college. And and the, the frightening thing for me, and I've heard other people who've spoken on the Bubble Hour mention this, is for me it was a very unpredictable thing, drinking. Um, it was almost like I'd roll the dice and I'd see what kind of uh, reaction I would get that particular time if I drank. I probably was suffering from low blood sugar and some other stuff like that. And so sometimes it would just be crazy and I would black out. I wouldn't know what was happening or I would get really sick. And other times it would just be fine and I would drink drink the whole night and it would just um, do what I guess I had wanted it to do. So you know, it became this kind of um, sort of challenge to myself to try to master it. And I kept that up for a couple of years. I did get into academic trouble because I really let things slide. 
and um, kind of pulled myself up again. <laughs> At the moment that they threatened to kick me out of school, I turned it around. I moved in with my great aunt off of campus, and I, um, she was in her 80s at the time and a really terrific friend and support for me. And then I started sitting in the front row of my classes, ended up getting straight A's the rest of the time I was in school because I came so close to being really sent back home and didn't want that to happen. It would have been humiliating and everything else. It's almost like, you know, I had to push it to the limit and see if I could land back on my feet, which I did. Um, I then entered my professional um, stage of my life and my twenties kind of go like this. I was fortunate to get hired in a field that I work in today. It was a creative field and I didn't, um, you know, I didn't, I kind of accidentally ended, ended up in a terrific company um, with a lot of opportunity. Um, but it was during the late 80s and um, early 90s. And it was an industry also that was really based on, you know, a big food scene and a big drinking culture and a really big party culture. And um, so, you know, once again, there I am in a situation where things are going great for me career-wise. Um, I'm doing something I really love to do. I have a lot of opportunity for growth, and I'm pulling it all. You know, I'm doing great things on the career front, but I was really introduced to a more sophisticated level of very heavy drinking during that period of time. Uh, at the same time, I was dating. Um, I didn't really have boyfriends before that, and I was doing a lot of dating and blind dating, which is anxiety-producing all of it on its own. And then, you know, suffice it to say, without gory details, um, you know, an episode that ended up, believe it or not, in a very high-end restaurant, a, a food fight ensued um, that I was involved with with some other people. And after that, that was a wake-up call to me that I needed to, to look uh, to, to either stop altogether or, or do something. And so I had a friend at the time who was in the AA program for 13 years. I reached out to her, and um, she took me to a meeting, and I was about 26 at the time. And I went to some meetings in, um, in my city. I tried different kinds of meetings in AA. I didn't have a great experience in AA, actually. I um, tried to go for it, and I, I really sought out potential sponsors. I got a I think three different no's for three different reasons from people I, I asked to sponsor me. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons that could have been, but I didn't take that as a great sign. And then I tried to do the steps on my own and I got to the fourth step. And if, if you're not familiar with the steps, maybe you are. The fourth step is where you do the personal inventory. And I literally filled an entire notebook and I wasn't done. And, um, and it was, it just made me feel so bad about myself and I just couldn't, I couldn't carry on there. I know the program is great for a lot of people. I have friends in the program, but it was something that wasn't great for me. And I, so I went off on my own and I, um, eventually I was, you know, I was still not drinking and I was introduced to my, um, now husband and we were introduced through family friends and he was really nice and, I started dating him and I thought I was going to be way too much for him because he was so mild mannered and smart and quiet, quieter than me. And it, we got off to a great start and I eventually just started kind of drinking again, just kind of like we're going on dates, I'll have wine. 
oh, we're going to go to France together. Well, we can't not have wine if I'm in France. And so I just started picking up the habit again. And I started drinking into the beginning of the marriage. I would say that during that period of time, you know, it wasn't like I was drinking every day, but I was drinking pretty consistently. And I would just have those occasional bouts of those scary episodes where any amount of alcohol was not enough. Then I drink too much. And then I lost, you know, just any idea of what had happened. And then I was embarrassed and it just kind of, it would come out of nowhere. It felt like, and so it was very unpredictable and really very out of control. When we were in our thirties, um, I went into just around the time I got married, I, I made a very big career change to another company that sort of catapulted my career into a whole new area. A lot of travel, a lot of responsibility, um, a lot of challenge in a great way. And so that was like, um, you know, we bought a house. I had a new job, new marriage. And then we started having kids a few years later. We had two children. And um, I, I look at my 30s as really something that became a phase of steady drinking, kind of as a, n- a numbing coping mechanism, once again, to manage anxiety around um, my children. Um You know, one of the things that um, I've listened to a lot of people talk about their own stories and, you know, my kids are uh, late teens, early 20s now. And and I feel really bad because, um, you know, I think I carry I think when I got pregnant or when I had my first child, I had so much anxiety around parenting. And actually, it was a little easier with the second child, but um, I was really kind of fell into being a parent and I knew I wanted to have kids, but I, looking back on it, I think I carry a ton of shame around the fact that, that I didn't feel that kind of transformation that a lot of mothers describe about how once the baby came, my world was complete or there was nothing as wonderful as my babies and caring for my children. In fact, after I had my daughter, my first child, I had a four-month maternity leave. I was actually relieved to go back to work because I was insecure as a parent. Um, I was afraid I was going to hurt her by putting a T-shirt on. I had all kinds of issues with breastfeeding. And I just had all this anxiety around parenting. And I just didn't feel like anybody around me had the same feelings I was having. I felt guilty about wanting to be working. And I, I think it was just, I carry, like looking back and getting ready to do this call today, I think that that defined a lot of my feeling about the work and the parenting over many, many years. And it, it didn't really help me feel, you know, that great about myself. And I think that that was probably had a great deal to do with wanting to numb out. In the same period of time, my husband, um, who's in education, uh, would have long breaks and he'd be home with one or both of our kids during his break. And the kids did really well when they were with him. Um, and he was just really a hundred percent dedicated to them when he was home. And so we made a decision to have him take a leave from his work, um, to be home full time with the kids. And again, looking back on that now, it it made so much sense because my career was just skyrocketing and really demanding. And he was just so much more suited for the child rearing. It made a lot of sense, but I think that um, that whole transition was not easy. It took a long time for us to adjust to it. It's not 
unheard of in our society, but it's um, not exactly, it's kind of an anomaly. When we would go places, it was like a topic of conversation. It was, it was just, it was a wonderful thing for our children. And up until they were in grade school, they had their dad with them full time at the park and all that other stuff and making their lunches and, you know, feeding them dinner and everything. But at the end of the period where he was home, you know, I got to the point where the stress of my work was making me crazy. I felt like I was missing everything that the kids were involved in. I was always traveling. And then the, and that great aunt I told you about that I had lived with previously um, was getting much older and it was in ill health. And I needed to move her out of her house that she'd lived in since 1919. And all of this happened all at the same time in that same period of time. So I was under a lot of stress. And I ended up finally seeking out the help of a therapist who told me to, something very simple, which was, why don't you talk to your husband about how you're feeling, <laughs> which it seems really obvious that I come from a really fa- fabulous background, a family with it very ingrained that you don't talk about it when you have a problem, you just kind of bury it. And, um, and I actually talked to my husband about the pressure that I was under and how I felt like I couldn't be the sole breadwinner any longer. He, within a matter of weeks, ended up going back to his um, job, and I ended up resigning from my job. And I, I, we laugh about it. On a Friday, he went back to work, and I was, you know, having my going away party. And the following Monday, I was 100% mom and just had to have one kid at preschool, one at elementary school, didn't know who went where, didn't know how to run the household or any of that stuff. So it was kind of comical, this role reversal we did. And that kind of kicked off the next stage of working, which was I consulted for myself, but I also took care of the kids and my great aunt and house and all that other stuff. And so um, the forties were defined by working for myself, um, you know, being home with the kids, um, going through some, a couple of trying circumstances. My daughter had a massive seizure one day when I brought her home from school and we thought she was really ill. It turned out she had a bout of epilepsy, which as it turns out is the thing you want when you have a massive seizure, not some of the other scary stuff. And I kind of look at that and I look at a lot of things in my life as sending signs and signals. And that one, I was just so lucky that um, I was home and that didn't happen at the yard at school. Um, and I was able to, you know, figure that out. But it took a long time to get her medication stabilized and to feel like things were okay there. And it really kind of kicked off my daughter anxiety for like the next 10 years. And the 40s were defined by being more there for the kids Um and taking, I think, better care of myself um, in terms of exercising. We have always been eating well. I, I cook a lot for our family. But the lingering thing was um, this drinking habit. And it was just sort of not me. I couldn't imagine a world without it. I couldn't imagine us vacationing without it, entertaining without it, um, hanging around with friends. I mean, you know, this is the period of time that the you know, in the last 15 years when the wine culture has really kicked off. And, um, and so that's kind of where I was in my forties. There's a lot of this. And, and also during my forties, um, I started waking up in the middle of the night often and started waking up with this, um, 
inexplicable anxiety and sort of the feeling that I, I was more aware of my own mortality. And I talked to a couple of other female friends about it and they were experiencing it too. And I kind of chalked it up to something that happened when you hit 45. Um, but I know now that it probably was the result of all the alcohol we were consuming. But that started about 10 years ago and, and was something that really troubled me. So the other thing that was happening for me professionally is I worked for myself for six years, but then I got a really great job offer to start a business within another business with a, a guy I had been introduced to. And it was in a brand new industry. And I went to go take what I would call the big job again. And when I went into that, my kids were in high school and middle school, and it felt like they could manage things on their own. And so I went into this big job. And it was around that time. Also, my husband got very into the idea of being a connoisseur and a lay mixologist. And I'm um, really enjoying the process of researching and tasting and putting together very interesting cocktails. And um, that kind of became our thing. And we host a lot of people for holidays often. And we, when people come over, they would always expect really terrific cocktails. And it became very much cemented as part of our identity is the, the house that people love to come to. They got great food. They got great drinks. And um, it was overall a good time. So that happened at the same time I was taking on this other job. It ended up being a good job. I really enjoyed it for a period of time. But then I didn't, my partner and I didn't see eye to eye. And it got pretty toxic. And, you know, a lot of the toxicity sort of revolved around also more drinking. You know, he was a big drinker, too. And we had, we had like, the, the booze cart at the office. And there was always, like this kind of energy around imbibing. I mean, we worked for, for people who were starting spirits brands. And so it was just kind of a, just a new phase of an old story. And so that's, that's where I was um, in the years leading up to when I um, decided to quit. So when I ended up leaving that job, you know, I had more time on my hands to start my own business again. My kids were older and that's when I think I started really thinking about what to do and thinking I really want to make a change. And, you know, I, I would say over three or four visits to my doctor, I mentioned it. I got some not very helpful advice like, well, if you're drinking too much, instead of having a drink, take a long walk when you get home from work or something like that. And I felt like I had been sort of sending feelers out to to get a little help. I wasn't really finding it. Kind of in the end there, a series of things happened. And it was after I had turned 50. I was flaming out of this job. I quit the job. I, you know, started really thinking about giving this a go. I started Googling all kinds of things. And I found this wacky website about moderating um, alcohol, this person in Australia had started and it was really funny. I signed up right away with at some ridiculous fee monthly. And it fortunately eBay or I mean, um, PayPal didn't, uh, make the charge, but I would, I was at the point where I would do anything if, if somebody could tell me how to moderate this and only drink on weekends or something. So I wouldn't have to worry about this anymore. At that same time, you know, I started just investigating different things and weird things happened. Like I ran into my older half-brother. I hadn't seen him for a while. He told me that he had been at Benny Ford because he had been very concerned about his drinking and nobody knew 
that he even had that as an issue. And when he told me, I felt so relieved for him. And I also just felt like it was kind of empowering to hear that. And it was encouraging. And then I had a birthday and my birthday involved my husband making a very spectacularly boozy cocktail. We had some friends over and our boozy cocktail was too boozy for other people. They could only drink wine because our cocktail was so boozy. And so the next morning when I got up, I just felt really weird. And it was a wake up call. And I thought, I thought there's something to this. We're, we're just, we're drinking too much and we're, and we're drinking stuff that's so potent that other people can't even handle it. And I just felt really bad about it. And so that day on my birthday, I went with my husband out and I basically um, told him for the first time, I said, look, I, I have a problem with alcohol. I can't, I can't drink. And I'm, I don't think I can moderate it. I just think it's a problem and I, I shouldn't be drinking. And he was super concerned and very sympathetic and probably fortunately didn't tell me that he had been worried too. Um, I don't know if he ever was. He doesn't say that he was, but he was very, very supportive and sympathetic and told me he would do anything to support me. Um, and that kicked off a 30 day episode of, of no drinking. And I was, you know, to be honest, when I went into it, I was so afraid that I would um, have some physical withdrawal symptoms because it was the first time besides being pregnant that I hadn't had alcohol every single day. And I ended up, you know, going through the 30 days with him, no problem. And then we went on a vacation and we started drinking again. I kind of carried on that way until the fall. And then what happened in the fall is I started Googling again. And it was so funny because I found um, the Unpickled blog of yours, Jean, was the first thing I found that I read that I really identified with. And then the more I went into the rabbit hole of the Internet, I started finding all of these places where people were getting sober without having hit some rock bottom where they landed in jail or or lost their family or, or whatever And I realized there were a lot of people that weren't um, ascribing to the belief that you needed to be in a 12-step program in order for it to be successful. And that was kind of eye-opening for me. And I didn't realize it. The other thing that happened is I found that a lot of the people that were in the groups and in the blogs and in the books and the podcasts I was finding were women experiencing a lot of the same things as I was. And so I started realizing that I wasn't really alone in this and I didn't need to wait until something terrible had happened in my life to, to turn this around. And so when I started kind of doing a lot of that digging, um, I was also listening to some other things. I was reading some books like drinking a love story, girl walks out of a bar. And I decided that fall, um, and I told my husband right around the holidays, I said, look, I said, um, you know, I'm a January 1 kind of person. I need to kick off the year with something. I don't do it every year. But I said, I'm going to stop drinking. And I said, 2017 will be, you know, a new year for me. And I think I'm going to give it up for good. And he said, I think it's a good idea. I felt better when I wasn't drinking. And I think that's great. I'll support you any way you want. And I just told him and 
you know, I didn't go out with a bang the holiday season at all. I just sort of quietly kept it amongst myself. And I listened to a lot of podcasts and things and a lot of that conventional wisdom that says, don't start things you can't keep up with a New Year's resolution. But that's, I, I knew once I made up my mind that there was a good chance that I was going to stick with it. Um, and so I went ahead and just kind of stopped cold turkey. What was helpful to me was that I had done a lot of reading in advance and I really started thinking about what I did daily in my routine so that I could anticipate um, some of the struggle that would come with quitting. And I won't lie, it was definitely a struggle. And three years has made a huge difference for me. It's been, you know, that first year was, was just full of, full of challenges. I had a huge challenge with, with one, one of the kids. She was headed to college and then told us at the last minute she wanted to take a gap year and stay home. And it was funny because a lot of people will tell you that's a great thing, but we were really ready for our daughter to leave. And, um, <laughs> and that was just shocking that we were going to have her for another year. And I had two weddings for the first time in 10 years. I had a weird high school reunion that year. I had a bout of pneumonia um, that probably came on because I was working a lot. I had actually a couple of concerts and a beach festival that year. And then, importantly, professional events at my old company that I, that I had left. And, you know, and it all culminated with a funeral and, and the holidays again, which we host most of the holidays for my family and my extended family. So that first year was kind of brutal, but I, I embraced each challenge as like, okay, bring it on. You know, if I can do this once, I can do it any other time. And, and I, um, and I was able to get through things. So it was great that, um, I I mean, in hindsight, it's great at the time I was white knuckling it, particularly getting ready to go to things because a big habit of mine this is probably not that uncommon, but a big habit of mine was uh, preparing for any event by what my, my a good friend of mine calls preloading. And so it was sort of the anxiety, you know, calming um, antidote was to drink before just about anything I did. And so um, fortunately, I was able to uh, kind of make my way through that and, and stay sane through a lot of these things. Like I said, I've listened to a lot of a lot of different people tell their stories, and we share a lot of things. And some things might be different. And I and I have to I have to say one thing that happened as I was preparing for this. Uh, one of the podcasts I listened to is the Gretchen Rubin podcast. I think they call it Happier. Her and her sister do a podcast, and and through that I found a book book that she wrote called The Four Tendencies. And I don't know if anybody ever heard heard of this, but you can do a little quiz and then you figure out what your tendency is and what kind of a person personality you are. And you can be an upholder an obliger, a rebel or a questioner. And when I found what I found when I did that is I am identified as a questioner, a little bit rebel, but a questioner. And that tendency theory is that it really is all about how you handle internal and external expectations. And a questioner is motivated by reason, logic, and fairness and, and, you know, wakes up and thinks what needs to get done today and has to decide for themselves if it's worth doing something. 
And it, it boils down to a questioner resists outer expectations and meets inner expectations. And once I realized that, um, I, I realized that what was really motivating for me was going deep, deep into the content that is on the internet and podcasts. Even some of the content, like at night, before I would go to bed after two days of not drinking, I would Google um, benefits of not drinking for 48 hours. And then I would find out that um, by then, you know, I've regenerated 10,000, you know, new blood cells and I've um, improved my blood sugar by this percent or whatever. And I would use that kind of information to consistently reinforce the logic around stopping drinking. I know that sounds wacky, but it was so motivating for me to really understand kind of what goes into addiction. What are some of the the ways that different folks are writing about and talking about addiction? And by understanding it more deeply, I think um, it made sense for me from a rational perspective to quit and to, and to stay sober. And so that was very useful to me. And I, when I heard Gretchen Rubin as a guest on the 10% Happier podcast that Dan Harris does, he's, you know, big into meditation now, and he has that podcast. She described her whole four tendency thing really, really well. And I think it explains why some people need a group of friends telling them good job and why some people don't necessarily need a group of friends telling them good job, which has been a big mystery to me. Like, how do I stay motivated if I'm not going to a group of people and getting them to tell me good job? And so it was helpful for me to understand that about myself, whether or not it's event, you know, if it's, if it's real science or reality, it doesn't really matter. It, It works for me for this. So that was super helpful for me or one of the things that I found kind of validating when I did it. And then also just looking for signs everywhere. That first year I started hearing about She Recovers and they had that conference in um, New York. And I happened to be in New York for the first sober wedding I was in. I ended up only being able to attend She Recovers for half a day, but it was really cool being there. And then I went to the LA event and and I felt like that whole She Recovers thing when I would get the, you know, the ads would pop up or I'd hear about it on the podcast that first year, I'd be like, okay, that's a sign. If, there, if I keep seeing this thing in my feed, I must be meant to go to this thing. And so I've tried to kind of look at things that way. And when my daughter threw us the monkey wrench about college and decided to stay home, and that proved to be very challenging, um, but ultimately it mended our, our relationship in, in really great ways. Um, I have to say that I looked, I, you know, I looked at that as kind of a sign too, but, you know, I went through most of my child rearing years completely numbed out to my kids. And I questioned, you know, all the time I felt really bad about it. And I thought I was just a terrible mom. And I felt like once I got sober and I was at the hardest part of my parenting, my, my kids adulting part, the transition from teen to twenties, it has by far been the hardest part of parenting. I don't think it's just cause I'm sober either. I think it's, um, it's just been a really d- difficult transition. And so this has been 
um, it's been so gratifying to be present for it, but not just present, but like know that when you're listening, you're really listening, you're not going to forget it. And knowing that when, when I've been able to manage anger better, frustration better, I try to communicate better because it's not inflamed by either alcohol or the residual guilt or fogginess from alcohol. So that was really gratifying. And I think that's probably about it. I kind of skipped over a lot of things, but I think you get the general gist. (laughs) There was a ton, ton of great information, uh, not only in your story, but you really shared a lot of ways that a lot of tools that you used you wove into your story. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that. So, of course, I have questions and things I want to have you expand on a little bit. But first, I want to tell you that, so you and I have met. We met in, <laughs> in L.A. briefly. I definitely yeah. remember that. I don't know if we met when you when you were in New York because you were just there for such a quick amount of time, and it was so, there were so many people there. But anyway, I know we said a quick hello in L.A. for sure. Yes. But, I, you know, I didn't really know your sobriety date or anything. So so here's the coincidence of that. On the day that you were getting sober, I had just broken my leg. I mean, I broke my leg the day before oh, that. Yeah. So that day stays in my mind because I spent uh, January 1st, 2017 with a house full of company for uh, a huge um, New Year's Day dinner, and I had just broken my leg. And so everybody pitched in and cooked dinner and just kind of wheeled me into the room. <laughs> to eat it with them. Oh, no. Anyway, here's why this matters. Because that month, I because I was laid up and I was bored out of my mind, I wrote a blog post every single day through the month of January because I had nothing else to do. And so there you were, just getting sober, and and I was sort of passing time by writing an extra lot of blog posts at that time. So that would be why when you Googled getting sober I probably was fairly high in the search engines because I was producing so much content at that time. So see, the universe conspires to bring us together. And I just think it's interesting how our stories can overlap with other people without us even knowing it. So anyway, right. that I just I kind of think that that's funny as I hear you tell that story now. And I'm like, oh, I happen to know what I was doing while you were struggling through your first days of, of detox and and um, and regenerating cells. I was yes. <laughs> I was recouping in my own way. Anyway, okay. So <laughs> um, there's a, there's a couple things I, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit yeah. more about. One is when you talked about doing a personal inventory when you first considered <laughs> working on a 12 step, and you said that you filled a, a whole book of personal inventory. And since a lot of our listeners are not familiar with the 12-step process, and even though you didn't end up working through that program, I, you know, I suspect that your exposure to it that you had, even though it wasn't necessarily exactly what you needed at the time, or maybe you weren't ready for it, or for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But, you know, it probably laid the foundation for later when you did, when you were ready to make a change, you knew what to do. Even though um, you didn't necessarily return to that program, you knew, listen, I need, I need to just quit totally, right? What I want you to come back to is that, is that step four process and the idea of a personal inventory. 
so, so now that you have a couple years of living alcohol-free and, uh, you know, you've done some work on understanding yourself better, can you talk about that a little bit and just explain what a personal inventory is and why it's helpful? And if you've since done kind of a your own version of it in a different way uh, now that you have quit drinking for a second time. You know, uh, it's interesting you ask that because um, – I don't, I, I have some familiarity with the steps, but that was coming up on 30 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. And my understanding of it, but again, this was me flying solo as usual, you know, Hey, I have the big book and now I'm going to jump into this thing. For me, it was sort of a journal ish approach to downloading kind of every terrible thing I had ever done. That's the way I looked at it. And that is obviously I'm paraphrasing because I know that's not the intention of that step. Um, But I basically unloaded sort of a, just a, a history of just, you know, how I felt about myself and my actions over the years. And that was why I filled a whole notebook, even at that young age, I probably even started before my drinking history then. And so what's interesting about your question, Jean, and it's, it's, it's a very interesting question because I think that there is some merit to reflecting personally on the things that you do. Um, I know a lot of people write regularly. I've had a really hard time writing and it's probably, there's probably a whole other conversation about why I'm having such difficulty writing. I write in my job all the time but I I can't seem to write about myself. I have a really hard time talking about myself. And in preparing for this call, for example, when I really looked at kind of what happened through me for for parenting, like the big personal inventory piece there and the big takeaway looking at it was like, oh, man, I, I just have felt so much shame around my discomfort and my nervousness about being a parent. Where's the rosy glow? You know, where's the, my heart melting every time I look at my baby? I just never had that. And I felt bad about it. And then it kind of just catapulted from there through all of the anxiety and parental decision making. And so for me, that inventory, that's so revealing. That just that insight. So that could be a one page inventory. But when I was approaching it at 26 years old, I was kind of misguided and I used it as a, like a, just a flogging post. So I could just, you know, self flog myself with every bad thing I'd ever done in my life. And um, that's where a sponsor probably would have come in handy. Um, Because I think that if you write out, you know, just the, just the events that you've gone through and then you look back on it, you can maybe find a little bit more kindness about the overarching thing that was occurring and address that versus getting hung up on every little thing you did that was, you know, not right or maybe mean or not, you know, misguided or something. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. And I I think that's exactly what the process is about is recognizing all the ways that we do have self-loathing and guilt mm-hmm. and letting go of that. And, you know, the next step in the 12-step process is then to share that list with another person. 
as you say, typically your sponsor. And I think the real, the the powerful experience of that is that you say out loud all these things that you think are so these, these shameful burdens that you carry, and 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 the world doesn't stop turning. You know, you say them to another person, and right. they, they hear it, and they're nodding, and they're they're holding that space for you, and and then there you are, you know, and they're still there, and they they're still there for you, and you realize, okay, like, and somehow I believe that physically it almost lightens our load a little bit too, and I just think it's a great tool, and I I think for for people that are not using that program or a similar program, just even having awareness of of that part of the process is really helpful because it's it is so healing and whether you do that through therapy or through other means, it's part of what we need to do. I think it's part of what everyone needs to do um, in one capacity or another. I mean, it's just a really great tool and we're probably never done doing it. But I just I find it interesting how you're able to see how you know, as a as a younger person, you were sort of, it was a tool that you, because you didn't have any instructions or any guidance on using it, yeah, it was kind of, it wasn't helpful, but now you're doing it more instinctively in a way of just being kind to yourself and gentle to yourself and, and acknowledging those things and then releasing them. And sometimes they're not even true. I mean, you mm-hmm. might not have been having hallmark moments with your babies, but you loved them, right? I mean, you do love them right, in your right. own way, even if that doesn't look like um, the the um, sort of easily identifiable like version of it, which I think is even probably even harder these days, just because of um, social media and expectations that people place on oh, themselves. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I think, and and I wanted to talk to you about um, the extra stress on parents that have a child with a chronic illness. Um, so for you, having a child with epilepsy, and I had kids, two of my three boys have uh, anaphylaxis, which no one mm-hmm. knew anything much about at all in the, in the, uh, at the time they were born. I mean, EpiPens hadn't even been invented yet. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a real extra layer of, of stress, especially on... A, a parent who's anxious to begin with, anxious and controlling right, right. to begin with. <laughs> so I think yes. we should just give uh, send a little bit of extra love out there to anyone who's listening, who's who is a caregiver for someone that's got like a chronic illness that is like you feel like their well being is on your shoulders. That's a very heavy load to carry, and um, and it takes a well, toll it, on it was, us. What was hard? What was especially hard? And I kind of liken it to my circumstances. Uh, now and around getting sober. So what was very hard is my daughter was, you know, she, she got put on this medication. Um, then she sort of like went through puberty and then sort of depression set in. So you've got the trifecta of, is it the medication? Is it true depression that's uh, exclusive of the, uh, of the medication or is it hormonal? And so you've got this sort of swirling mix of, you know, it's almost like the, you know, whack-a-mole thing, like which one is it or what do you do about it? And we were really fortunate, Jean. I don't want to diminish what other people go through with kids with chronic illnesses because, you know, we were fortunate because she ultimately ended up being able to get off medication as she got older. Um, She's 
so much better now and so much happier. I think she was truly suffering from depression through high school. But it reminded me of like around the time when I started getting sober and kind of now I, you know, I, for some crazy reason, I'm still in perimenopause. And so I've got the perimenopause thing. I'm sure I have dramatic changes in hormones and mood swings. And then it's sort of like, is it the, is it the not drinking? Is it the hormones? Is it the this? Is it the that? And so it's like you're trying to figure out what it is. And in the end, it really doesn't matter what it is because you need the same coping mechanisms, right? It kind of reminded me of that when I was going through the teenage years with her. Yeah, and it just adds stress. You're absolutely right. I'm curious, did you experience grief when you took alcohol out of your life? It had been a big part of your life for a long time. Did you go through a period of sadness or a grief for it? Yes. Actually, I did. Part of the reason that I was really worried about quitting, I knew for a long time I needed to quit. I've known this for a very long time. You know, I, I, I probably should have started this whole thing by saying, you know, from the moment I started drinking, I knew it was a problem. You know, how people say it never was really a problem and it kind of just crept into my life. I knew from the minute I started it was a problem. Because it had become very steeped in how we entertained and what my husband and I enjoyed, together and with other friends and stuff. And because of the atmospheric um, surroundings when we're having cocktails or when you're at a really nice uh, dinner and you're having good wine and things like that, I was really worried about losing that or when I travel, um, losing that. And I was so worried about speaking to my husband about it because I felt so bad because I knew that this was a big hobby for him. And I didn't expect him to stop. On my behalf, I didn't want that, but I felt like the killjoy, you know, who was going to upset, you know, the way things had been. And and he was, sell, I mean, beyond seller. He drinks next to nothing now. Um, sometimes he'll drink uh, probably twice a year or something. But he was really stellar about it and offered to do whatever it took, take it out of the house if he wanted to, whatever. For me, I experienced it in the beginning associated with very particular events and things, okay? But remarkably, I don't really miss it anymore at all, at all. It, so it was hard in the first couple of years or first, particularly the first year with all those events that you associate with Friday night, I associated with it. I had to come up with a whole new routine on a Friday night. And where I really have experienced it most profoundly is I'm a big cook and um, I consistently imbibed while cooking in the kitchen, really enjoying feeding my family and others. And I do not believe that my love of cooking is nearly as engaged as it used to be. And uh, <laughs> I did lose, a, I, lose I lost a little um, love of cooking. I'm, it is the only thing that I have been like, wow, that's, that's too bad, you know? Well, do you think, um, do you, think you really ever loved cooking or did, was it That's a, the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> Maybe I did it. Maybe I just powered through it, right? Um, because you know how you look for the activities that you can just drink while you're doing them? Yeah. So yeah. I, that's what I wonder about. Yeah, because we just, you know, I, we gravitated to everything. I couldn't imagine doing anything without it. And now I, I really, it's remarkable, but I... I just don't, um, I don't miss it. You know, I travel still for my work 
and the airport time, I feel so bad for people who are, who are trying to quit and really struggling with the travel because business travel is just the worst. If you know, but I was thinking that the other day I was had a long flight back from New York and I thought, and it was funny because I was thought I could be drinking free drinks this whole time and everybody around me was just drinking huge amounts of alcohol. And I thought, it is so great that this doesn't even bother me anymore. I never thought I would get to a point where that wouldn't bother me. And, so we're headed uh, into a time of year when there's a lot of work functions, Christmas parties, year-end mm-hmm, stuff. Yeah. Um, do you have any tips or advice or tricks mm. or what? How for people that have to navigate those really alcohol-soaked, um, particularly professional things, but just any mm. any party or social setting? The best thing that I can tell people to do, and I did this a lot in the beginning. I actually do this all the time now, um, almost to a militant way. You plan in advance. And sometimes I comment to people on that Facebook group we're in. I'll say to them, plan, do this. Know exactly what's going to be there. Plan exactly what you're going to drink and eat. Just like if you're dieting or something, you're supposed to plan on what you're going to eat. Plan on what you're going to do and know it in advance and just follow it. And also be prepared to leave if um, you've made your showing and you don't need to be there much longer. You'll know if it's useful, especially if it's a work function. You'll know if it's useful. Half hour in, you'll know if it's useful. And then you just leave if it's not. And be prepared for people to ask you why you're not drinking. So um, one of the things I did early on, which is probably, um, I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but fortunately because my husband um, still can drink, if I'm going to a function that's going to be, it's just going to create a big ruckus if both of us aren't drinking, I'll just ask him to take the half a glass of wine and then just hold it or something so that it doesn't, because I don't feel like answering the question for everybody all the time, you know, even though I do, I talk pretty freely about it. But I think going back to your original question about how to get ready for it, I never had to leave and like call somebody or do anything or like have a moment by myself. Although I think changing setting and excusing yourself and going to the restroom or something or going even just to check your phone or do whatever, I think that's a good way to just distract yourself. But I think just being being able to and prepared to leave early um, or after you've done enough time there and always have a plan for what you're going to drink and be prepared for people to just be completely jerky and only to have Diet Coke and water wherever you go, and and hopefully bubbly water, and you can ask them to add something to it, right? But that's mm-hmm. my biggest beef these days. I'm a militant, um, angry person about the lack of regard for um, people who don't want alcohol. I I'm, I still go to nice restaurants. I still go I still go to bars, and if you go to a good one, you can usually get a great bartender to put together something delicious for you. And I'm so I've kind of turned in that direction where I just now I'm on a crusade to make non-drinkers just as sophisticated, just as fine of a palate, and just as fun as other people. We don't need to have alcohol. And I just mm-hmm. get irritated everywhere I go. I'm thinking our mindset should shift and we should stop feeling vulnerable and feel more empowered to just demand it. Okay, I'll pay $8 for it, but give me something good with seed lip in it. You know what I mean? Instead yeah. of this. Yeah, exactly. Muddle yeah. mm-hmm. me a couple get... mint leaves and, you know. Like exactly. The, take take the time. Exactly. and it, uh, Like you say, go ahead, charge me. 
a premium price for it, I, I will gladly pay that for my sobriety. I'm happy to do that. And besides, yeah. I'm only going to have a couple, right? It's not like I'm going to have 10, like exactly. if it was one. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, then I get picky and I start asking him how many calories are in it. So then I'm, I'm, I'm a nightmare to anywhere I go where I ask him <laughs> to put something together for me. But I have to say, like, it was funny because I was rereading that Anjali article. I don't know if you remember that one in Medium. Christy, Christy Coulter, Coulter wrote it. yeah. Yeah, and that was one. That was actually before that summer. Before I finally made the change, after I'd done the first thirty days, I came across that article, and that was me to a T. I identified with everything she said in that article, and I was like, I, that was it. Started changing my opinion instead of feeling sad and grief stricken about not drinking. I it started changing my mindset to kind of get angry about. Like, why do we have to be wine-soaked at every turn? You know, why did we have to, every time you're stressed out, the common response is, oh, you just need a drink. I'm so tired yeah. of that, you know? <laughs> so. Translation, go back to sleep and be, be compliant oh. and <laughs> numb. Oh, it is. Like, I call it the fainting couch. It's like the modern fainting <laughs> couch. Just give her, give her a glass of wine, yeah, so... That so just for our listeners, the, mm-hmm. I just want to point out for listeners, the, the uh, Anjali uh, essay that you're referring to is by Christy Coulter, and it's actually, you, it can be found in a, a collection of her uh, excellent essays mm-hmm. called Nothing Good Can Come From This, <laughs> um, and uh, I highly recommend that um, our listeners pick up that book because it's, it's evergreen. I mean, it's just it's one of those things mm-hmm. that kind of there's a different essay for whatever mood that you're in and and of course Christy Coulter is just really brilliant and and funny so uh and obviously she hit home with you too and probably a lot of other women who felt that sort of superwoman uh, mm-hmm. push and and had to stand up and say wait a minute look I'm claiming my life back here um, yeah. I have one more question for you before mm-hmm. our time runs out, and that is, uh, I, I didn't know that uh, you mentioned your stepbrother, and I didn't know that was part of your story, and so I'm just curious what kind of a conversation you've had since you quit drinking, and, and if you guys have connected on this topic and, and joined forces within your family as the sober warriors in your household. But when I get together with my brother, we just talk and talk and talk, and sometimes I'll call him and just see how it's going, and because you kind of get the feeling that nobody else really understands. And I, and I kind of, I do think this. I think unless people have a real addiction problem to alcohol, <laughs> you don't, you don't really know, you know, you don't understand what it's like to not be able to moderate things and feel, you know, and all the stuff that goes with it. So we definitely have a bond over that, but it's awkward with the rest of the family because, you know, like I said, I grew up in a heavy drinking household. It it hasn't really, my siblings that I grew up with in the same household haven't really, none of them are heavy drinkers. I was a wild card because I was always a wild card on a lot of things. And so it's not as much of a topic and it wasn't, and I didn't make a big announcement to everybody when I stopped, you know, and that's still a little bit awkward with the family kind of, I think, <laughs> I don't know why families are so complicated, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is. And, and here's the thing. I think when we, when, if we don't have the opportunity to talk to our family about it, either officially or, you know, in side conversations individually or something, I think sometimes there's a worry of, 
what did we do to you to make you like this? Or like, are you oh, yeah. are you going to those meetings and blaming us? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe, um, gosh, you must be really embarrassed and you don't want to talk about this. And so, you know, whether it's sort of, so if they're protecting themselves or if they're just well-meaning and giving you your space, we all, you know, we don't know. And, and so we fill in those gaps ourselves. And so sometimes that can make them more uncomfortable, make us more uncomfortable. And sometimes we need to just let that go and let it be what it is and, and um, the new normal settles in, right? And it's yeah. probably going to be a healthier new normal if at least if you're not drinking and you're approaching the relationship from a healthier perspective. As much as I love the idea of, of everybody having great communication and having new understanding around it, I think the reality often is that people just kind of let it settle into into what it's going to be and um, and go forward yeah. from there. And really, that's okay. As long as you're supported in your wellness, that's the most important thing. Right. Addiction is really complicated because, like I said before, I don't believe if you haven't struggled with addiction, you fully understand it. And I have a friend who's a therapist who told me, oh, I, I'm just a big fan of a 12-step program. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't even know. I try to tell my doctor you don't even know. There are so many resources now for people. You don't have to be this old-fashioned notion of I lost everything and therefore I need help. And I feel like that still, when you say addiction or you're, you know, you can't moderate or I can't control, I need to stop completely. I think sometimes to the family and beyond, it's really scary for people to grasp that you had that problem. And I still struggle with that, to be honest, because um, I say a lot of things about why I quit. And usually I just say to people, I was drinking too much. I was drinking every day. And then I try to get them to ask me more questions to try to clarify it. But I think it, it, it does make people uncomfortable. And for me, it's admitting for a long time, I thought a huge weakness. And now I'm sort of like, yeah, it is what it is. You know, it's just, this is, it's so much easier if it's not in my life, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but I think people are very uncomfortable with the notion of addiction because it says weakness or it says out of control or it says you're addled and on the ground and you can't get up without the thing. And they don't understand. And I didn't understand until this round of sobriety. I had no idea. I'd never heard the term high bottom before. And I was like, well, heck yeah. Oh, I, oh, oh, I don't have to get in a car accident and lose my house and lose my family and lose my job to make sure I, you know, to get this, this ship righted. And I kind of always thought I did. I was waiting for this bottom to hit, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I think it's unfortunate because I think it's still defined that way for a lot of people, you know? So that's the gray murky area. Yeah. Definitely. And I, I feel like in this information age, that's probably the biggest change is that we're starting to, mm. the more we talk, the more we learn, oh, I don't have to wait. I mean, mm-hmm. rock bottom is is for is what motivates a lot of people. And, and so mm. it's often said, well, you have to hit rock bottom. But really what you have to hit is just what you're not willing to do anymore. And right. whatever brings you to awareness. And so for some people, you know, they, they need to actually push off against a, a rock wall to, to say I'm never going back there. But 
uh, especially the earlier we can intervene in the trajectory of addiction, I think the earlier, the greater chance we can say, oh, you can stop this now. I mean, you're definitely mm-hmm. into addiction, but um, take your power back while you still have it. I mean, that I feel like right. that's really the advancement that the age of information is giving us because we can communicate so much easier. It has been great talking to you today. Uh, As always, the time just flies. I want to thank you so much for not only sharing your story but celebrating your milestone um, by by being part of the Bubble Hour and by by giving back to this sort of circle of space holding and story sharing and and supporting one another that that happens here. And I'm I'm really glad that you're here. So thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you, Jean. This has been great. I appreciate the opportunity and get so much from this. So I was thrilled to be able to do this. Thank you so much. I'm really you're welcome and, and thanks again for being here. And listeners, if you would like to send some feedback to Micheline about um your appreciation for her time here, email thebubblehour at gmail dot com and I will make sure that your messages get to her. So that's everything for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I did that, not proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free From power, weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.